0: Good afternoon, this is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The 27th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, COP27 as we know it, was meant to build on the outcomes of COP26 to deliver action on an array of issues critical to tackling the climate emergency. Were these critical issues, such as urgently reducing greenhouse gas emissions, building resilience, adapting to the impacts of climate change and delivering on the commitments to finance climate action in developing countries, met today on the the show I catch up with Minakshi Raman she's the president of Sahabat Alam Malaysia and also the head of programs at Third World Network to discuss some key outcomes or lack thereof from this set of negotiations welcome Meena how are you today Fine, Juliet. Thank you so much for joining me, Mina. So you're back from Egypt. Major talks, you know, went into deep into extra time uh, as parties attempted to reach a deal uh, to secure some consensus. I know I know, Egypt, you know, wanted this to be an implementation COP, right? That would see pledges um, uh, of the past give way to balanced action uh, on tackling climate change and preparing for all these effects. What were, you know, in your opinion, what were some of the big wins and losses? Maybe we can start with some of the wins.
1: Yeah, I think, um, Juliet, well, happy to come back. And uh, sorry, I missed the elections. <laughs>
0: um, we missed and, you
1: too. Uh, yeah. And um, so anyway, watching keenly from Shamal Sheikh. And as you said, it went over two days. And uh, it was early morning of uh, Sunday, the 20th, 4 a.m. in the morning that the final period actually convened. Wow. Um, and uh, I think first, before we get into the wins, a different difference in the process. Okay. Um, because the Egyptian COP presidency, led by the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Sameh Shukri, what they did, the team, what the COP presidency team did, which was different from um, the previous COP or other COPs, was really to hammer out a lot of the difficult issues um, behind the scenes. Okay. Um, you know, you remember in Glasgow last year, um, when the plenary was convened, you had a big bash on India and China, yes. um, you know, with the full media attention and public glare on, on China and India, which was on the issue of the cold face down and so on, which was actually very pretty ugly mm-hmm. because it painted the developing countries in a very bad light and, you know, made the developed countries actually very, you know, they talk about ambition, which is the same thing that happened in Shamal Sheikh. They talk about Um, you know wanting to do more on fossil fuels and all that but as they speak or as they spoke then they were actually having plans to expand fossil fuel production right now they all are with the u.s one of the biggest expansion and use of fossil fuels including the uk and alok sharma coming to sham and saying fossil fuels is not on the tax and banging on the table and so on so there are a lot of you know, gallery, playing to the gallery and so on. So what the Egyptian presidency, understanding how these talks are actually very, very fractious, mm-hmm. um, a lot of diverging, um, you know, views and perspectives and difficulty, which I'll come to um, in a little while. So they ironed out everything behind the scenes. Okay. And um, and they, they did it. It may not have been transparent to the public and the media, but it was... Um, Transparent in the sense that it wasn't some um, text which came out of the sky, mm. but rather it was um, uh, text which arose from various uh, um, of the informal consultations which were going on and then consultations with the parties and trying to understand where what they wanted to see, for instance, in what they call the cover decisions, you know, the overarching decisions. So a lot of consultation went on. So they had the first week was much more called the technical negotiations where negotiators actually um, hammer out some of the technical details. And then where they can't and they narrow down options in the second week, it went to ministers Mm -hmm. where you can't uh, find compromises. So it elevated to ministerial level, but mainly on a political, um, you know, issues, not in the technical details because ministers really don't understand all the technical details like like the loss and damage fund yeah. and then on the final hours actually the cop presidency itself convening the parties the heads of delegation to sort things out so i think in that sense um a lot went on behind the scenes which i found was actually quite um interesting because i think the presidency uh, was aware of the full um you know crisis that it would have happened on the floor had this gone public, particularly on very difficult issues, and being painted, developing countries being painted as the devils and yeah. so on. So because we saw uh, that yeah. happening last year, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So for a big a, a big win which would actually be on loss and damage, um, if you recall, we have talked about this before, yeah. there are three main um, pillars of the Paris agreement. Um, In terms of actions, one is actually mitigation, which is uh, reducing emissions. The other is adaptation, which you adapt to the climate impacts. And then we go into the realm of loss and damage, where adaptation can no longer work. And you actually go into climate disasters, And as we saw in Pakistan, and also slow onset events like sea level rise and so on. So finally, and I call this the orphan child the often child of the climate change regime being given recognition. Now, in a sense, you know, when you give priority to loss and damage, we're already signaling how terrible the world, the, the direction of travel yeah. of the climate crisis. Um, you know, it's not that the loss and damage fund, although it's a win that it has that that there was agreement to establish it. Um, it has no money yet because it was just an agreement to establish it. And uh, the big, biggest fight and, and um, block of, uh, um, or, I mean, the blockage or the hostage of this issue was actually a blocker of this issue was the United States. Everybody knew this it's from Glasgow itself. Um, the U.S. did not want any uh, money, any new entity of any fund of any kind. In fact, they didn't want anything on finance at all uh, in Shamal Sheikh, which is always the case. Um, but what we need to recognize is that the sadness of it all is that you recognize that it's a win that you have a fund for loss and damage, no money yet, but it's a big win. But the fact that you know developing countries, particularly vulnerable communities, who are affected by like the disaster in Pakistan, which is attributed to mainly climate disaster, um, you know, it's not that there's any ordinary natural disaster. You have, I mean, I was pained to see at many of the events that I was invited to, to speak at uh, as well, where you had both the climate change minister and the planning minister of Pakistan, and they were showing us videos of of what happened. It was heartbreaking. It was really, really heartbreaking. The poorest, you know, the poorest of these who are really left with nothing and everything gone. I mean, one third of Pakistan damaged, which is like 33 million people affected, which is almost like the population of this entire country, Malaysia. Yeah. And, um, and now they say that estimates of 40 billion in losses uh, losses and damage. Now, how how on earth can any country survive or come out of it? So this is why I think loss and damage became a big litmus test, as they called it, the test for the success of Sham al-Sheikh. And especially because Pakistan which was the leader of the, or the chair of the Group of 77 and China, which is the negotiating block of developing countries, united, stood strong and firm. And there were efforts, I must say, by the developed world to try and split them. But thank God for the leadership of Pakistan, they prevented that from happening. And until the final hours, the Group of 77 and China stayed together. Now, when developing countries are united, they will have to have a good outcome because that's really important. So that, that that fear that we had that there would be a split in the last hours uh, could not materialize. And the other thing, um, Juliet, is that uh, for, peop- for, for folks or people who do not know in the back rooms, behind the scenes, there was a lot of pressure coming from civil society already in Glasgow and there was a lot of buildup. Um, Particularly civil society of the North in the US in particular. Lots of progressive organizations putting pressure already um, in in Washington. And and, um, we we were surprised to find that there were actually articles pre-COP already in the Washington Post and New York Times and everything which actually spotlighted lots of damage. So the work of the progressive civil society groups who were in solidarity with the um, developing world uh, was really quite significant as well. So I think with the US really being shamed and with the developing countries united and with the moral conscience and voice of Pakistan, I mean, you can't come to a cop and not realize what Pakistan has gone through. In fact, um, behind the scenes, um, we heard that one of the efforts of the developed world was to say, okay, if we agree to this fund, and not just the US, but the EU as well, and also Switzerland and others, they basically said, this is only going to be for the particularly vulnerable. What does that mean? Exactly, exactly. So, So, Pakistan said, because normally the developed world would like to say the particularly vulnerable are the islands, mm. the small island states or the least developed countries who are the poorest of the developing economies. And so Pakistan said, we don't fit as an SIDS, we are not a small island state, we are not an LDC. So how do you treat like countries like Pakistan and there are many other countries in the similar, in a similar boat? Including even India and China, where large populations in Bangladesh, Bangladesh Indonesia, yeah. you know, Indonesia, even I mean Malaysia, we have you know we are affected by the floods and so on. we are all vulnerable. So the point is that there is um, you know in the convention there is no such thing as only the SIDS, the small island states and the LDCs being only vulnerable and the rest are not. This called there is a, in the convention reference to. Um, vulnerable conditions whether you are a mountainous country whether you're a coastline whether you're an island whether you are you know it's also it comes to vulnerability in relation to your geography yeah so it is not vulnerable because you happen to be an island or a least developed country but rather the conditions of developing countries so that was one um, you know block that had to be unblocked and pakistan had a moral voice to say look We are just as vulnerable and we are listed as one of the most vulnerable countries in the world so you can't count us out and other countries in a like situation the other that they tried to do other thing that developed countries tried to do juliet was to actually broaden the donor base so this you know this thing about who should put money in the fund and this was particularly being targeted primarily to china and also they say other uh, you know high-income countries and so on, which, you know, would, include, would have included even countries like Malaysia, you know, middle-income, high-income, emerging economies, and so on. Um, but what the developing countries were very clear to show is that, look, this issue was already settled in Paris. Yeah. Now, this issue about who should provide the climate finance was is, is, is embedded both in the Convention and the Paris Agreement, where it's recognised that the duty and obligation to pay because of a climate debt arising out of historical responsibility and historical emissions because of emissions in pre-industrial era. That is the reason why much of the impacts we are facing today from historical emissions and the warming of the atmosphere largely to what I have constantly said on this program, the overuse of the atmospheric space by the developed world um, in causing the current impacts. So Paris already very clearly said in Paris, the Paris Agreement says that developed countries shall provide the climate finance and mobilize climate finance and other countries can voluntarily do so. So China is perfectly entitled to voluntarily do so. And so are other um, developing countries. And in fact, China said quite clearly, we, are, we continue to do South-South support, which is a provision of support through cli- uh, for climate and other purposes in, the, in South-South relationships, in solidarity, and this is, it's not our historical responsibility to commit to putting money in the fund. Right. So these were, these were the kind of distractions that were put along the way. Um, for the loss and damage uh, fund to become reality. So, um, until the final hours, we were not sure whether we would have a deal, and thank God we have a deal. Now, what has been kicked down the road is actually the resources for the fund Correct. Um, and how the fund will take shape. Yeah, so Shamal Sheikh recognized that there should be a transitional committee in place, um, con- comprising of 24. Um, you know, members in the committee, um, 14 coming from developing countries uh, with one seat for Eastern Europe and the balance of 10 coming from um, developed countries. So this will then be, this will be the next battle. How will the fund look like? Now we have the experience of the Green Climate Fund, which also had a transitional committee. This was way back in 2009 from Cancun and it took a year before the governing instrument of the Green Climate Fund came into being. So we since we already have that experience, we hope that the loss and damage fund will be speeded up in terms of its establishment and then the financing resources for that. Um, in fact, um, the climate change minister of Pakistan, um, Minister Sherry Rahman, very articulate, very brilliant. And she was saying, look, it's not the issue of lack of resources in the world. It has to do more with the lack of political will because if we can finance wars, if we can finance, you know, the rich countries from when during their COVID pandemic recovery could come up with trillions of dollars overnight in their uh, responses, or even there were others who were referring to the IMF, the International Monetary Fund's um, currency, which is called the special drawing rights, which the IMF. Issued in last year, $650 dollars $650 to for for the pandemic recovery and for other economic um, um, responses, and the, largely it went to developed world. The developed world because they have a higher quota in the IMF. So there are instruments like this, mm. um, and even um, as I have said, you know, the G seven fossil fuel subsidies every year. The group of seven richest countries in the world give uh, fossil fuel subsidies. Can you imagine of hundred billion a year, hundred billion dollars a year? Now, easily, quite easily, these could go into the fund, and including taxing of the super windfall profits of the fossil fuel companies, which can also be done, particularly the transnational corporations of the West. So, there's a so, so these are these are all fights and battles which will have to continue. As we move to the United Arab Emirates in the next COP, and so on, mm-hmm. so that's that that's uh, the loss and damage fund and the fight there.
0: Just very quickly, though, the Santiago Network on Loss and Damage. Do you just want to quickly mention what that what that is about as
1: well? Yeah. in the, the Santiago Network is actually a technical assistance facility to help developing countries, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the big fight there was to actually, ha- you know operationalize it or make it, uh, you know, institutional, you know, how will it come into being? And it was agreed in Shamal Sheikh that there would be an advisory board. It would come under the convention because there were efforts to take this network outside of the convention and the Paris agreement outside the COP and put it somewhere else in another UN or the Red Cross and so on and so forth. Luckily, that did not happen. So there was agreement to have an advisory board and now, again, the funding arrangements for that have not been um, finalized. Again, all funding issues, they've been kicked down the road. I'd just like to pause and mention here that um, this was because, you know, the U.S., and I called out on the U.S. quite a lot at the at the COP, and I always do. You always do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, there was this big thing that, um, you know, President Biden came up with some the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., it was a, a, you know, a, a, a big deal in terms of money for, for climate change in the US and policy and so on. But it had nothing to do with any money internationally. In fact, Biden did, does not have any approval from Congress for any money to be committed internationally for finance. And this is why the US was playing a very uh, you know, hardball in um, in in Shamal Sheikh so you know when you have and I called it the emperor has no clothes you know because you remember that story people were wondering why I was saying that and I realized that not many people understood that story because you remember the child that saw the emperor walking on the donkey and said um, you know everybody was quiet when the emperor was actually naked and had no clothes and nobody dared to call out on the emperor but the child had to say, "Mama, Papa, why is the emperor, you know, naked? naked you know, yeah. so it, it they had a child to call that out. So it is like saying that the U.S. had to come like an emperor with actually no, no, nothing to give to the international, um, you know, community, uh, to particularly to the developing world, of course. And they always use China as the bogeyman or the scapegoat for not for inaction." So, so, yeah, the battles on finance will continue. And you remember this this big thing about, um, so, so, the, so just to come back to your question, the Santiago Network, although having an advisory board um, and a secretariat to be established, an independent secretariat to be established, no money also, yeah. so this has been kicked down the, the road. So overall and finances, maybe very quickly to go into that. You remember this famous 100 billion per year by 2020, yes. which was actually the pledge that Hillary Clinton and President Obama, as I said, plucked from a hat, not based on on the needs of developing countries, just came out with a number in 20, uh, 2009, actually in 2008 in Copenhagen. And then it got recognized in 2010 in Cancun. And that hundred billion per year, when we landed in Paris, got extended to twenty twenty five, and still the delivery of that hundred billion per year has not come to fruition. And in fact, there was a big fight over what actually has been delivered, and that was another big big battle which went on, because the developed countries came up with huge numbers. Oh no, we have delivered eighty billion a year, and this, that, and the other. Whereas um, the Oxfam, Oxfam had another report which showed that what was delivered was at best about 20 billion at most. So wide ranging numbers here. And this is because of the definition of climate finance, an issue that we have talked about. Because developing countries have been saying, you can't just have any definition. We have to nail on what is climate finance, what does it mean, um, and how do you classify something as climate finance. Whereas the developed world... Um, even in Glasgow, what they wanted was climate finance definitions, so they could count everything. Mm-hmm. They could count loans, even with those which are not consensual, um, as has, has climate finance, contribute, their contribution to the multilateral development banks, like World Bank and so on, to be counted. Um, so they wanted to count everything as climate finance. And so this is where you have the exaggeration of the numbers. And so developing countries um, stress that this is not good enough. We still have to continue to work on the definition of climate finance. So this is why you have this $100 billion always being um, touted. challenged. Yeah. yeah, touted and challenged, and challenged yeah. in, in, in terms of Israel delivery. So now there, the Standing Committee on Finance, which is another body, is supposed to track the real delivery Have they really delivered. Now, this brings me to a very important discussion which will take place next year. Now, under the Paris Agreement, there is what's called a global stock take. Yes. Um, this stock take will actually take stock in terms of the state of what has been achieved under the Paris Agreement. So 2023 at uh, COP28, this will be a very important outcome. Again, this is a collective progress. And, and what... Will happen would be the big fight between developed and developing countries, as to who is actually responsible for not have no for the ambition gaps, the ambition gaps in mitigation, the ambition gap on finance, the ambition gap on adaptation, um, and, and so on. So this will be the big fight. So this year there has been a technical assessment, and many of us were pointing out that what they really need to do is to be objective about the facts. And not as developed countries want to always spin. They look, they want to talk about, um, you know, uh, they don't want to talk about what their pre-2020 gap, you know, the prior to Paris, they had the Kyoto Protocol commitments, which they have not met. They very low ambition. They didn't review their mitigation targets and so on and so on. Now they don't want to discuss any of that. And so this will of course be a big, big issue coming up to next year. So, um, lots of challenges down the road as we go to the United Arab Emirates. But I think what is striking, you know, um, Juliet, if you, for those in Malaysia who were paying more attention to the elections, which is to be expected, yeah. I think um, the um, the first leaders' summit that was held in Shamal Sheikh, uh, what struck the chord was uh, the um, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General who already signaled that we on, are on the highway to climate hell. And what he was saying was actually true. The Pakistan floods was already a big hell for that country. And we are likely to see more and more happening um, in this decade. So this is this brings me to the, you know, the obsession of developed countries when they talk about fossil fuels, and ambition. What they did not want to do, and this is again what we say as rewriting the Paris Agreement and rewriting the um, convention, was that they refused to acknowledge equity, the principle of equity and common but differentiated responsibility between developed and developing countries. They refused to talk about historical responsibility and they always, the effort is to dilute. Now, if you don't, take into account the fact that this is a common problem, but the responsibility is differentiated, that the leadership is in the hands of the rich, developed world, who must take the lead in doing much of the emissions reductions. And in the mitigation work program, this is the other aspect that was talked about in um, Shamal Sheikh, there is a mitigation work program, which was agreed to in Glasgow. And the discussion was, what will the mitigation work program Talk about. And one of the topics that the developing countries, particularly led by the like minded developing countries, was looking at why don't we also discuss the equitable access to the carbon budget? You okay. know, like under a temperature goal, there is a carbon budget. Much of it has been taken up by the developed world. There's a remaining carbon budget left. And how do we look at it in the context of historical responsibility? and how we need to acknowledge the fact that um, you know, the small population of 17% of the rich of the developed world having consumed about uh, more than 70% of that carbon space. Now, the developed countries, of course, would never agree to that discussion. But what they wanted to talk about was fossil fuels face out, And this is where the duplicity happens. And then they want to talk about the peaking of emissions. Actually, they were pushing... For a peaking of emissions, peaking of emissions means globally, mm-hmm. you have a peak um, by 2025. Now we are in 2022. The end
0: of 2022.
1: Um, we are at the end of 2022. Now peaking in 2025 would mean that within two years you have to already the emissions have to come down. Now why they they are they were pushing this and why developing countries, particularly, com, um, you know, big countries like China and India, whose emissions are particularly large and even Indonesia, because of huge population. It's not because if you take per capita, when we always take per capita, their emissions are much smaller, particularly even China, if you compare to the US, um, the per capita emissions are much lower. And if you take into account history and cumulative emissions, they have less responsibility. The developed world has much more responsibility. But these issues don't come to the focus. So when you don't bring in, this is why we say equity is center you don't bring equity into the the equation then what you begin to see is that you look at the gaps and you just say oh there is a temperature gap i mean there's an ambition gap all our you know you add up all your pledges under the ndcs we're going to reach cross 2.8 degrees centigrade you know so you don't you don't look at who is most responsible so you want to share so this is why they try to what i i, I commonly say the common but differentiated responsibility principle being changed to common and shared, you know, responsibility, yeah. Yeah. which 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 you can't do, and so the U.S. and even the um, uh, one of the other developed countries had the gall to say, or even well, even Russia had the gall to say in one of the meetings, "What is equity?" You know, I mean. Wow. Asking the question of what is equity, and so you know if you are in the process for so long and you have countries like this raising the issue of equity, and um, you know it is really um, going backwards, much more backwards. You're 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 you're, you're you know ripping apart the uh, agreement in Paris. You're ripping apart the convention, and you are putting placing a lot of burden on the developing world. And so this is really the climate injustice is really unfair. And to just look at it in this context without the equity lens. So so this is where I think that, um, so, so, you know, when Alok Sharma, the UK uh, COP26 president said that, uh, oh, fossil fuels is not in the text. It got deleted. Um, you know, there's no ambition here. We're not moving um we're not advancing from the glasgow decision on facing uh, facing down to phase out of coal and so on so and the EU saying same thing you know uh, Franz Timmermans, the chief um, European commissioner who came um, uh, uh, representing the European Union and he said the same thing you know we're going to walk out of this deal because they're not ambitious on climate and then I then what i I, I had said, and uh, continue to stress. Now, if they are so wedded to ambition, which they claim they are, and they want to be champions of phasing out fossil fuels, by now, they should have gone to real zero, they should have gone to negative emissions, not net zero by 2050, and doing too little too late, as I've said often, and putting in their NDCs, fossil fuel phase out, not fossil fuel expansion. There were studies which were released by, you know, Beyond Oil and Gas campaigners, Oil um, and Oil for Change. These are all reports which came out in Shamal Sheikh to show that the developed world is currently embarking on expansion and production of fossil fuels. And can you imagine a country like Germany, as we have said before, um, in response to the, um, the, the energy crisis uh, with the Ukraine war, going back to coal. So they had all these years to actually go renewable 100% and not go into fossil fuels. And these are the same people who are now going backwards and hip- hypocritical. And you know, to the uninitiated, to the public who do not know the facts of, of their hypocrisy, you actually believe, oh yeah, they are so ambitious and we are not. And then you you don't want to talk about equity. So this is why this is duplicitous. And uh, I think, um, you know, those of us in the know coming from the developing world, we um, constantly call out and say that, you know, you do you put in your NDCs, you revise your nationally determined contributions every year. They're supposed to revise so they don't have to wait for Glasgow. They should revise next year, put in the NDCs. They're going to salt fossil fuel production today. Then they're going to face out and they are going to stop expansion and they are going to, they're seriously, deeply committed to a fossil fuel face out in the G7 to start with and to to remove all fossil fossil fuel subsidies to their corporations. Now, will they do that? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so this, so this is it. I mean, they have to put action to where their mouth is and, and really... Call out, and in fact, Ed Miliband, the Labour shadow minister uh, of environment, and he said that uh, yeah, he he echoed the point that how come UK is still expanding on fossil fuel production while Alok Sharma is being showing, you know, and so-called, you know, with his strident remarks to the gallery about uh, UK's fossil fuel. Um, you know, leadership. Where was the leadership? The leadership was lacking. Mm-hmm.
0: And the Ukraine war has just—I mean—that's also being used as a reason to to justify, isn't it? This expansion.
1: Exactly. So this is why it's it, it's really uh, you know difficult. I mean, what this shows, what what this crisis has shown, is that for the developed world, who have the finances, who have the technologies, who have the capacity and the capability of moving into the real transformation that's needed away from fossil fuels, they are not able to do it. They had all the years to do it, 30 years to do it, and they have done nothing, and or not much, very little. So this also, um, you know, one important outcome, which I have to mention in relation to the mitigation uh, work program and the decision that came out was actually a just transition pathway. I think that's quite positive, just um, transition pathway. But before before I continue, I forgot to mention, there was also this thing about the UK and the EU. The EU pushing and expanding um, the production of gas, which the EU is classifying as green fuel. So they call it clean power and they call it as green fuel. And they are asking Egypt and other African countries to produce gas for export to the EU. Now, can you imagine the emissions will be counted to Africa's emissions or Egyptian emissions, and they classify this as green fuel for their expansion. So this this is another you know of those, those yeah. anomalies, yeah, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, duplicities that happen. So, but anyway, there is this this agreement. There is a decision from shamal Sheikh, which I believe is a good one. Um, to actually talk about what, uh, to have a work program, a work program which is organized on what just transition pathways will be, including the energy transition. What will a just energy transition look like? Now, these discussions are very important for a country like Malaysia, where we have 20% of our um, you know, oil uh, with Petronas, 20% of our i mean our national oil corporation contributing to the budget to the coffers of, of the country now if you want to do a just transition meaning it has to be justice based not unjust based so you know particularly uh, for you know, say con- economies which are fossil fuel dependent who have not, who have no other options but only one single commodity and you're relying on the fossil fuel sector to, to for your sustainable development and poverty eradication and so on. Now, how do you move on a pathway which is just a very important conversation uh, in this work program, um, which has to be uh, you know um, properly done. And many of us will be engaging, particularly for example, say South Africa. Um, significant about eighty percent of its if its people locked in into fossil fuel economy. Yeah, like coal. So. Jobs. What happens to those in those economies which are dependent on the fossil fuel economy? So the unions. What do you workers? What will happen to them? Can you retrain them? Can you bring them into other alternative jobs? Can you diversify um, into other kinds of of of, uh, activity? So these are very serious conversations to be had.
0: So I guess. I mean, okay, so those were the, 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 I guess, the two major wins and losses there, right? And of course, you know, COP28, as you mentioned, it's going to be a huge one. Um, it's going to be held at in UAE, right? Which is one of the world's largest oil producers, which is, I think, quite ironic. Um, what, I guess, you know, what what's going to happen in the road to COP28? What do you see uh, happening in the, in the meantime?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the intersessional, which is the June session of the subsidiary bodies, mm-hmm. uh, will be a very critical moment. In between, there are many workshops and all under various work programs that are being organized, starting already in March. And then there will also be the meeting of the Transitional Committee for the Loss and Damage Fund, um, the Advisory Board for the Santiago Network. So a lot of activity will already be happening okay. in terms of the institutions which will have to carry the work forward. I, I forgot to mention, which is very important, that the global goal on adaptation, um, as I have explained before on your program, You see, there is a temperature goal, which is the limiting temperature rise to one to two degrees, uh, well below two degrees and to pursue efforts to Mm -hmm. 1.5 compared to pre-industrial levels, recognizing that there would be more impacts uh, in a two degree world compared to a 1.5 degree world. Now, the point here is that um, you don't have a similar adaptation goal. Um, In Paris, it was agreed that there would be a global goal on adaptation in terms of strengthening climate resilience, in terms of making sure that there are less vulnerable communities, um, that more um, countries are able to uh, cope with with, with adaptation. So the discussion was about how do you establish a global goal in adaptation where you can do measurements as well. So this was one discussion and the group of the, the G77 came together and they wanted a framework established now that it was agreed that the framework will be um w- will be established but it will actually be established in um 20 next year in shamal sheik but what the contents of the framework this was hashed out in um in shamal sheik which was important okay. but one of the weak points there was that the the means of implementation because developing countries wanted again the goal the the financing for adaptation as one Uh, very important framing for looking at the achievement of the global goal. But of course, like I said, all issues of finance gutted, so so that was not possible. But the G77 came up with some interesting ideas. For instance, um, how do you measure whether how many countries say by 2025, um, you know, the world has got by 2025, an indicator that countries have early warning systems in place? you know yeah. by 2030 that uh, you would have uh, all countries with national adaptation plans um, formulated and uh, so on and so forth so some some metrics and then by 2025 2050 how many millions are made less vulnerable and so on so the g, g uh, the, the group of 77 and china were coming up with some kind of metrics to become a benchmark when you measure, when you look at, you take stock and say, what has the global response been to adaptation? Not just the temperature response, temperature goal, but also to the, to the um, adaptation goal. So this, will be, this, this is something that got fleshed out in Shamal Sheikh, which also will be talked about further um, in UAE, in Emirates, in Dubai. Okay, and that's going to be next December, right? Yes. Yes,
0: I'm afraid we've just run out of time, you uh, know, but yeah, are you feeling a, a bit more hopeful about uh, the, I guess, the outcomes from this talk, this set of
1: negotiations? Well, I, w- I was a bit more hopeful because it looked well, ho- not not hopeful, but comforted by the fact that there was more balance in, you know, in terms of the outcomes, mm-hmm. uh, because loss and damage was, you know, we had discussed how it got recognized global goal and adaptation advanced. Uh, Loss and Damage Fund very significant, Santiago Network very significant, um, and and it was just not all mitigation centric. When even in the mitigation uh, aspect, just energy transition and just transition pathways very important steps for developing countries as we move forward. So said so there's some good good things there, and the thing which we need to build and in the climate fight, this is the only uh, global multilateral uh, um, you know arrangement that exists. So we have no other choice but to keep en- engaging. And of course, every small step is a big fight. Every small win is a big win. And every, uh, you know, backsliding is a, is a difficult process. So we have to keep fighting. And so we have no other choice but to keep on. And the more there is um, awareness and climate justice groups in the in the world, not only in the developing world, but also in the North, where there are strong climate justice um, you know progressive groups demanding uh, climate justice and not just you know like you half you have half the population in the us denying climate science yeah. even until today <laughs> i mean it's crazy and then the thought of the prospect of a trump administration for 2024 absolutely frightening terrifying so yeah absolutely horrifying so we just hope that there won't we won't have to have other many more pakistans when will we realize that people who are already dying today, you know, due to climate impacts that they never caused? And it's the poorest and the most vulnerable. So in that sense, the struggle goes on um, and uh, your BFM will have to also continue in, in in this fight. And you've done a marvelous job in bringing the voices, um, you know, to, to the fore and in educating our population. So this has to go on. Yeah.
0: And it will go on, of course. And thank goodness for people like you calling out those emperors, isn't it? Those naked emperors walking around on their high horses. So
1: (laughs) thank you. Totally, totally.
0: So thank you, Mina, I mean, for joining me today and for, you know, explaining all of that. Um, Any last message you want to leave our listeners with? I suppose, you know, with a new cabinet coming in soon, anything like
1: that? Yeah, I mean, I have said that we have to put climate change front and centre. And I actually think that, that it should be under the Prime Minister's department. And it should be, uh, you know, under the economic planning unit, because we have to give climate change very high priority. And the final message is: what was very clear is that you can't have an economy without you take without us being very very playing having climate high on the agenda. Because look at Pakistan: all it took was, uh, you know, episodes of rain. To then wipe out one third of your GDP, so all this, you know, we talk about economic development and commercial activities, and that being the most important. And we put climate change in the back burner. We see it as a side effect, and oh, we can have some environment ministry with five people dealing with it. This is not the way to deal handle climate change. It's already, you know, um, rec- we have to recognize that this. We have to change our mindset. The way in which we do our economy, and maybe this the story that I will tell that is that really spells it all out. The Minister of Planning of Pakistan, when he was explaining the the 20 the the climate crisis, I mean, this disaster, the horrific um, floods yes. that happened there, he said that in 2010 they had floods as well. It was quite massive. So what they did was actually to build bridges. Much, many, many bridges. I think he said there were about to, oh, a lot of bridges that were built, to, um, taking into account the level of water in the rivers that they found with that 2010 flood episode. Okay. Now, then they built the bridges higher, taking into account that baseline. Come 2022, the waters were just so enormous, all the bridges were wiped away, washed away. So what we are seeing is your, we have to prepare for you know, this kind of impacts which are of biblical proportions. You know, it's, it's happening now already. It's not 2050. It's happening now. So climate change is not a matter dealt with by a Ministry of Environment, which we can put in the back, you know, back burner, but it's front and center. How do we address loss and damage? Are we prepared for it? Are we building climate resilience? Are we are we having an um, adaptation plan in place? If we are not, and we know it's not, are we are we when we when we plan when we are building homes when we are building structures we are building dams we are building you know on the coastlines we are reclaiming now is that climate resilience you know so it we have to begin to look at everything from a climate change lens. Mm -hmm. And I certainly hope that the new prime minister, you know, when he was opposition leader, we met with him before the elections. He was very concerned about climate change. He was very interested in learning. I certainly hope that he would put climate change front and center on the agenda because he actually wanted to set up a parliamentary select committee on climate change uh, and the environment. So it will be very good to see a prime minister and a cabinet which pays attention to... Climate change and the environment, much more. Water sustainability, for instance. No water, economy shuts down. Yeah, Klang Valley goes berserk. Um, No, I mean floods. We all get wiped out. So it's not. It's not about looking at environment later or climate change later. It is here and now. And what are we going to do about preventing disasters from happening? Mm
0: And climate and the climate crisis, and you know, thinking about uh, development, they are not mutually exclusive, We we need to look at them.
1: Uh, we the look. It's a re- we look at the mindset, the paradigm, yeah, yeah. decision making integrated. Do we need this? How we produce, how we consume, so that we are climate resilient. We are much more able to adapt, and much and low low carbon pathway. How do we do it? It's across all sectors, not just in one sector. So I certainly hope that we will put this very high on the agenda of the new cabinet. And with a minister, I know the prime minister is concerned, and with a minister who knows and appreciates what's happening.
0: Thank you so much, Mina, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Minakshi Raman, president of Sahabat Alam Malaysia and head of programs at Third World Network. Uh, Mina was helping to explain what went down at COP twenty seven. Did it deliver for people on the planet? Yes and no. Uh, we'll see more. There's more, of course. More battles ahead, as Mina said. If you'd like to find out more about the good work done by the Third World Network and Sahabat Alam Malaysia, just head to foe-malaysia.org. That's for Sahabat Alam Malaysia. And if you'd like to find out more about the Third World Network, just head to twn.my. I think all your reports from COP twenty seven are also listed there do go and read Then, if you miss any part of our conversation today just download the podcast at bfm.my earth or you can find it on the BFM app this has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture BFM
1: 89.9 You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9 The Business Station For more stories of the same kind download the BFM app